Matthew 7, 12 to 14. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, You guys know that we're just going off of a retreat, us elders, and uh, you may have also noticed we're like at half strength today, and you're thinking to yourself, boy, it must have been rough because David and Ken already quit. Um, (laughs) They're okay. Everything's fine. This is not a reflection on how the retreat went or anything like that. Um, But it was good. We'll talk more about it later. Um, How many of you watched the Olympics? I used to watch it more so. It's been a little while. But I I do know that the highest medal that you can get in any competition is a gold one, right? Right. And I know that when we say something is the gold standard of anything, we mean that it's the best, right? And when we refer to somebody as a golden child, sometimes we mean it sarcastically, right? But what we mean by that is that child can do no wrong, right? So gold is a sign of perfection and quality, and that's why we use it so often in marketing, right? And it doesn't matter if we're talking about rolled gold pretzels or gold bond foot powder. The idea is that we know that gold is supposed to be the symbol of quality. It's the best. It's the highest or best award we can give. And today we're going to talk about the golden rule. That's what the heading says in your Bibles. So that must mean that it's the best, right? It's like the super rule. It's the one rule to rule them all, if you like, right? The golden rule always reminds me, when I I think of that phrase, I I think of there's a a line in The Music Man. For my money, it's it's the best musical there is. But, uh, you know, it's a great picture of small-town America at the turn of the last century, and it makes a mockery of the sort of cultural backwardness of a small town, River City, Iowa, that doesn't actually exist. And this charlatan, the protagonist, the music man himself, comes into town and he's going to sell instruments and band uniforms, but he needs to find some reason to get them to buy in, right? And he needs to prey on their fears somehow to get them to buy this thing. And he finds his opportunity in the fact that there's a new pool table uh, in town, and that's going to be the corrupting influence. That's what's going to take the youth right downhill into hell kind of thing, right? And uh, in this memorable early scene, he gives this whole song that's more of a recitation kind of thing called Trouble, and, uh, you know, and, and the trouble is this, this pool table, right? But at one point there's this line, he says, Remember the main, Plymouth Rock and the Golden Rule, he says. You know, it's just a throwaway line. And uh, I, so I thought of that line this week because nothing could be more baseball and grandma's apple pie than the Golden Rule, right? The Golden Rule is so ingrained into our cultural subconscious that it's almost uncontroversial in a sense, right? Do unto others. It's one of these things that even the most irreligious people you know will say this sometimes. They'll borrow it. And I would venture a guess that after the judge not passage, this is possibly every unbeliever's second favorite verse, is verse 12, right? Uh, because this is how many people define being a good person, right? This is, this is niceness. 
And niceness is all our culture seems to expect of each other. It's demanded even. Just be kind. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Uh, You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Or as my old neighbor used to say, it's nice to be nice. His wife used to respond, yeah, you should try it sometime. (laughs) The internet is overrun with quotes that are variations on the first half of verse 12. Every celebrity has a version of it, it seems. Oprah, Dr. Phil, every other wannabe philosopher out there, right? Which immediately makes me think people have to be reading this wrong somehow, right? Uh, There's no way Jesus could have said anything that was that popular that everyone seems to agree with. And yet, if you Google golden golden rule, that's what you find. And if you go to Wikipedia, it has a whole article on the golden rule, right? And uh, they will explain to you that nearly every religion has some variation on this theme and on these words. They claim Confucius said something kind of similar several centuries before Jesus did even. And sometimes it's stated in the positive, uh, the way Jesus does, you know, go do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Other times it's stated negatively, you know, don't treat other people the way you wouldn't want to be treated. And it's probably this widespread agreement that kind of popularized the, the, the title of calling it the golden rule, right? Jesus doesn't actually call it that in, in this passage. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, it seems like the phrase, uh, the golden rule, was first used by a, a couple of Anglican bishops about 400 years ago, but it kind of stuck. Uh, everyone calls it that now. Uh, and, and it's become sort of the one rule of universal ecumenical agreement. Um, but I don't really trust ecumenicism all the time, and um, I don't trust universal agreement on almost anything, typically speaking. Uh, it feels fishy almost, you know? Uh, like, some people deny that we landed on the moon, right? You ever met these kinds of people, right? Uh, that's partly how I know that it actually happened, right? Because I expect that there's always going to be some conspiracy weirdo, some skeptic out there who's going to deny these things. But when everyone says the same thing and it becomes a given, I start to be suspicious a little bit. Like, maybe this deserves a little more scrutiny. And I confess, that was kind of my first feeling when preparing this week. It's like, yeah, everybody knows this passage, but I'm like, hmm, it sticks in my crawl a little bit because of that. Because then you find, and I'm reading this on the Wikipedia article too, you know, even atheists try to get on board with this thing and try to justify it, right? There's an atheist who's the head chaplain at Harvard, because that makes sense, but, you know, welcome to America today. Uh, He insists that the golden rule doesn't require belief in God to follow it, you know. So it's become everyone's rule. And you have evolutionists coming up with evolutionary theory to try to explain this, and they call it the theory of altruistic reciprocity is what they call it, which is really just a vain attempt to justify a golden golden rule without a god. So if everyone agrees with Jesus on the golden rule, my first thought is, like, are people reading him wrong, or am I reading him wrong? Like, what's missing here? Why, Why is this happening? But the more you think about it and the more you dwell on it, the more it seems like, well, it really is an obvious truth. And it keeps showing up because God has written his law even on the hearts of wicked men. It's the same reason that murder is against the law in every culture, at least in its most uh, obvious forms, like out on the street. You know, if I shoot somebody, it's like I'm likely to get arrested in just about any society. And it's not because every culture is equally good or every culture is God-fearing, but there's an element of sort of self-preservation that we all need to get along, right? 
And, and this is why, you know, the United States Constitution, many other constitutions include a line about something about the general welfare, because in general, people want people to be okay, because it means that it'll be, uh, I'll be okay if everyone else is okay. And the golden rule kind of hits directly on that theme, doesn't it? It's actually pretty closely aligned with the idea that we came across with the not judging, right? Judge not. Because Jesus said if we judge people, we need to be braced for the blowback that's going to come because they will judge us by whatever standard we're using. And the golden rule is kind of stating a similar truth. We can't expect people to treat us well if we treat them poorly, can we? What goes around comes around, just like Justin Timberlake said. That is the first time I have quoted him. You're welcome. But in that sense, the the golden rule is almost obvious, right? We should all treat each other better and decently, right? Simple. Amen. Let's go home and be nice. It's not that easy, folks. The problem with this command, like so many others, is not a problem of understanding. It's not a confusing command. The reason it is echoed in every major religion in some form or another is that even in secular philosophy, it's there because it's the bare bones of what is necessary for society to exist. And if it sounds obvious, it's because it is obvious. The problem is not comprehension. The problem is execution. And a brief glance at the world and at every society throughout history will demonstrate the fact you have wars, you have invasions, you have slavery, uh, and even right down to the mundane, everyday sins, all of them somehow violate the golden rule. So everyone's teaching it, but nobody's doing it. Like many of Jesus' commands, this is easier said than done. It's obvious that this rule makes sense. The fact that we all recognize it is evidence, really, of common grace. And that the law of the Lord really is written on men's hearts. Paul testifies that this is true in Romans 2. He says, for when Gentiles, meaning unbelievers, even your Confuciuses, right? Uh, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. It's actually a similar argument that C.S. Lewis makes in Mere Christianity and so many other apologists elsewhere point out that even unbelievers know inside that sin is wrong. They know that stealing this from somebody else is wrong. They know that adultery makes you feel guilty. They know that murder has a tendency to weigh down the conscience a little bit. So it shouldn't surprise us that we see the golden rule appear in some form or another all over the place. It would be actually surprising if it wasn't all over the place because we're all descended from Adam and we all know that sin has consequences. We live with them every day and deep inside we know that we are to blame and that we are not loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, which is the way that Jesus words it in one of the other Gospels. And not only that, we even take the golden rule and twist it. Now, this was pointed out by the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Uh, He disliked the golden rule. He's one of the exceptions here. Uh, He said it was open to abuse. Uh, For instance, a convicted criminal, you know, who's who's wanted for murder, and now he's standing here in the dock, and and he he could say to the judge, don't send me to to jail. Uh, You wouldn't want to go to jail, so you shouldn't treat me that way. Golden rule. 
let me go. So Kant said, you know, I just can't even with this thing. That's terrible. Why did I even write that? Now, the obvious answer to such criticism, right, is that the, the violation of the golden rule must have consequences if it's going to mean anything at all. The prisoner is on trial, presumably, because he already violated the golden rule himself, so he needs to be punished so that he and others learn not to do that. So, all right, Kant's criticism seems kind of silly. His problem isn't really the golden rule, but how people could abuse it in theory. On the other hand, Kant might be onto something, because the fact is that people are always selective in how they apply this rule, and most others, if we're honest, right? So, for instance, if I'm sinning in a particular way, I want my neighbor to leave me alone and let me sin. That's how I naturally want to be treated, right? I want him to turn a blind eye and let me sin to my heart's content. Now, in that scenario, I can say, well, that means I'll... I should ignore his sin. What's fair is fair. My lips are sealed if yours are. We'll live and let live. Now that's a perversion of the golden rule. I'll give you an even uglier example of how it gets twisted. You know, the Supreme Court recently overturned Roe v. Wade. And that was a long-awaited victory for the right-to-life movement. And a handful of states, not enough, but a handful of states have been starting to put some abortion restrictions into place. Some of them had snapback provisions kind of thing where it was already illegal and on the books, and now they can finally enforce it. But I read on Thursday that the governor of California has started buying billboards in states where uh, restrictions have been introduced telling the residents that they should come to California to kill their babies. And he has the audacity that at the bottom of these ads, he has quoted there, Mark 12, 31, where Jesus gives a slightly different wording of the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself, there is no greater commandment. Highways across America. I think Jesus might have some thoughts about those billboards Mm -hmm. to abuse his words to somehow promote child murder should turn the stomach of every Christian. So I point this out only to say that mankind may embrace the golden rule, but mankind is not trustworthy to interpret it or apply it. We need to know what Jesus means when he says this, and we also need to know that it will be enforced, because apparently we're really good at making these words mean whatever the heck we want them to mean, and applying it selectively as we see fit. It's a very simple rule, but sinful men will twist even simple things. So it's helpful, therefore, that Jesus doesn't just drop the golden rule here and then move on with life. What is unique about Jesus' version of the golden rule is not the rule itself, but the rest of the passage, because he gives us the root of the rule, where it comes from, and perhaps more importantly, he adds a command on top of it. And the second command, frankly, sounds much more serious and and, uh, maybe even threatening, but we're going to get to that in just a little bit. First, I'm going to look at the golden rule itself, the the, the part that everybody kind of knows, right? It says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them... For this is the law and the prophets. So the golden rule, according to Jesus, is the culmination of everything else that's been revealed in the law and in the Old Testament, meaning it can't possibly contradict the rest of those things, or else that means we're misinterpreting it. Basically, what he's saying is this is a summary of the law and the prophets. It's basically shorthand for the entire Old Testament, everything that came before. And 
Jesus frequently uses this formula to describe all of Scripture, you know, to, to say the law and the prophets. That's a way of shorthand saying everything God has set up till now. Now, it may seem bold, maybe even overly ambitious, to try to boil down everything God has done and said in redemptive history up to this point in a single simple phrase. But Jesus can, and he does this in a number of places. Uh, later on in Matthew chapter 22, a Pharisee asks him what the greatest commandment is, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now that is Jesus summarizing the Ten Commandments. Because the first table of the law concerns how we love God, and you know we have no, no gods before him. Don't worship idols. Don't take his name in vain. Keep his Sabbath. The second table of the law concerns how we love our neighbor. Honor your parents. Don't kill each other. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't be envious of each other. Right? Basically, what Jesus is saying is that the entire law, all of the commands, the specific applications, the cultural laws and the food laws, the ceremonial laws, everything, all of it, falls under the umbrella of the supreme law, the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And in short, without going into details, the second half of that law regarding how we should treat each other can be summarized with the golden rule. Basically, it's kind of the equivalent, by the time you're done reading it and simplifying, it's almost like just saying, can't we all just get along? You know, it's like when I walk into the room and I hear my kids fighting over something. I've said it before, but generally I don't care about the details, and I end up sounding a little bit like the golden rule. Like, can't you guys just play nice? Fight nice, my sister would say. It almost feels like that when Jesus summarizes the law in such simple terms, doesn't it? You want to know the secret to a happy and fulfilling life, guys? Just stop being so mean to each other. Stop treating people like you do. Just treat people the way you wish they would treat you. Is it really so hard? And apparently, yes, it is. Because as I said, everybody teaches this and nobody does it. And we keep teaching it because every time somebody treats me wrong, it reminds me that they should have treated me like they should, you know, they wanted to be treated, right? And we immediately pounce on the law because we want to apply it and we want somebody to come in and punch that guy in the face for what he did to me. And somehow it never occurs to us to ask whether the law might punch us too. So again, the judge not principle comes into play here. So the golden rule is not as simple as it sounds. It's easy to comprehend, rather difficult to apply. And I notice something else in this verse that doesn't make it any easier. And it's actually something that's missing. I've read it countless times this week, and I'm not seeing the promises of the blessings in verse 12. I said earlier, you know, that atheist philosophers, evolutionists, will try to justify the golden rule, and they'll talk about this idea of, you know, altruistic reciprocity, right? But Jesus doesn't promise reciprocity here. He gives absolutely no guarantee, not a single indication, that when we treat others the way we want to be treated, that the actual result will be that they respond accordingly and treat us the way we preferred to be treated, Sometimes that might work. Other times your kindness will not be repaid. Or worse, the golden rule could just make you a doormat. You've heard the saying, perhaps, that no good deed goes unpunished. It's not always true, but sometimes it is. We're a society of hypocrites. We don't live up to our own standards. Part of what makes this command so hard is that we suspect people will not respond in kind 
And so we almost have to preemptively treat them differently, right? But Jesus doesn't say we should treat people the way they treat us, and he doesn't promise that a good effort from us are going to bring good and positive results. All he's doing is laying out the moral obligation of the second table of the law in simple terms that even children can understand, but not even adults know how to do. The appeal of the golden rule is that it is simple and broad. It doesn't get lost in the details. Anyone can understand it. It has sort of power in its simplicity. And so it is embraced as a broad principle by almost everybody. Can't we just get along and play nice? It sounds so simple. But then Jesus lowers the boom in the next two verses because he knows that the longer we think about it, the less optimistic you'll feel about it. (laughs) Look at what he follows up the golden rule with. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now it's tempting to read that as a disconnected comment and an unrelated thought, but I don't think it is. It's kind of like the cliche your mom taught you, right? You know, if your friends were all jumping off a bridge, would you do it too kind of thing, right? It feels like a random little, little you know, proverb of sorts, but when you read it together with verse 12, I think it kind of clarifies things because the golden rule is such a simple statement, right? It, it's designed to be that way, and it appeals even to unbelievers because it sounds very broad. And the reason unbelievers like the golden rule, I think, is that they think that Jesus has set the bar kind of low and all they have to do is be nice and everything will be well. But what Jesus is saying in verses 13 to 14 is that by this standard, most people are headed for hell. So many religions preach the golden rule and it sounds easy, and it sounds easy because people tend to interpret it kind of loosely, but Jesus says the easy way leads to destruction and most people are on that road. It's the rare exception that is walking the straight and narrow path that leads to life. The world is, as they say, going to hell in a handbasket, whatever that means. It's a jarring contrast in this passage. There's this sort of broad simplicity of the golden rule, but then the narrow path that leads to life. So once again, I start to wonder if maybe people aren't fully understanding the golden rule and that what sounds so simple should probably terrify us. Jesus says in a nutshell that there's no easy way into heaven. There's no shortcuts. There's no express way. The way that leads to life is narrow and difficult and hard to find. Even in its simplest form, the law is not easy. And if we think it is, then we're fooling ourselves and we're not counting the cost. The wide and easy path is what everyone else is doing. It's the golden rule, but on their own terms. But Christian discipleship isn't like that. Following Christ requires that we walk in the straight and narrow path. It's much closer to his command earlier in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that just sort of blanket throwaway phrase, you know, uh, just be perfect. (laughs) A little easier said than done, right? They call it golden for a reason. It ain't silver or bronze. It's the top, right? All right, so there's not much I can add to that. The passage is simple. The application should be clear. And if we walk out of here committed to treating others better... Okay, that's a fine thing. We should all treat people better, and not just our fellow believers, everybody. And the world, I think, would definitely be a better place if we all tried this week to treat people right and to do so even when they don't return the favor. I think the world would be a better place. 
Uh, so, well, I could send you all home with the message to just go be decent, moral people. Love your neighbor, try a little harder, and follow the golden rule. Maybe get a framed copy of it from Hobby Lobby, and you can hang it in your bathroom and always see it there. And we can imagine all the people living life in peace. And uh, if we all do our part, life is just going to be beautiful. But if I stop at that point, beloved, that would not be the gospel, and it wouldn't solve our problem. Because our problem is that we will not obey it. I, I was looking just this morning at some stuff that Martin Lloyd-Jones had to say about this golden rule. He said, people hear this golden rule and they praise it as marvelous and wonderful and as a perfect summary of a great and involved subject. But the tragedy is that having praised it, they do not implement it. They say that they like the simple gospel and especially the Sermon on the Mount because it is practical and has no theology in it. Now this one verse proves how unutterably hollow the view is which says that all you have to do is to give people instruction and to tell them what to do, to hold before them the golden rule and give them intelligent training and that they will recognize it and rise up and put it into practice. The simple answer to that is that the golden rule has been confronting mankind for nearly 2,000 years, but still they are not obeying it. The whole thing can be brought down to the one word, self. Our Lord expresses it by saying that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, but that is the one thing we do not do, and we do not want to do it because we love self so much in a wrong way. We don't actually want to follow the golden rule. In short, because we are selfish and we don't even love ourselves correctly, we corrupt that. So we will screw it up all day long and convince ourselves that we're trying our best It sounds so simple, but we are much worse than we think we are. It's like what Paul said in that passage earlier, that our our consciences are accusing, but then sometimes excusing us, right? So where does the gospel come in here? What happens when the golden rule is just as impossible as keeping the rest of the law? When you simplify the entire law into a single sentence and it's still out of reach, where do we find our hope? I read earlier the story of the rich man and Lazarus. That was our gospel reading today, right? And you may remember that the rich man finds himself in hell. The poor man, Lazarus, is in heaven being comforted after a life of suffering. And the rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his family to save them from the same fate. He's asking him to play the role of Jacob Marley, right? And Abraham says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. They can listen to them. In other words, they have the golden rule. Why don't they just keep it? And what does the rich man say? He says, no, that's not enough. They'll never do it. The law and the prophets aren't going to save them, but if Lazarus returns from the dead, maybe that'll do something. And Abraham says these haunting words. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Beloved, the law and the prophets, the golden rule, should be enough. But it's not. We don't keep it, and we don't want to keep it. And in the end, all the golden rule really has done is leave people without excuse. The golden rule is what will ultimately condemn even good people who have never heard of Jesus who are going to say, well, I never had a chance. And Jesus will say, well, you had the golden rule and you didn't even keep that. This is a scary passage when you think of it that way. 
because the golden rule, the simplest, easiest to digest, easiest to remember version of the law, still cannot save you any more than the whole Mosaic law could. The summary of the law has no more power to fix you than the long version did. So if we're tempted to think that the golden rule represents a legalism we can live with, we have another thought coming. But then I think to myself, what if, what if the key to this passage is actually the second command? What if the key is not in verse 12, but in verse 13? What if the main point is not the golden rule, but the narrow gate? I think Jesus is actually providing the answer to the dilemma that I'm bringing up. We can't follow the golden rule. Everyone's trying, and it still doesn't work. And those who are trying to earn their way into heaven by obeying the golden rule, they're the ones on the wide and easy path that leads to destruction. But Jesus says, there's an escape hatch over here. Enter by the narrow gate. He doesn't explain what's going to happen next and how hard it's going to be and exactly what this is going to entail. Just go in that gate. Start there. And I think this directly relates to something that Jesus says in Luke in the passage right before the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In verse 16 of that chapter, he says, The law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Or, alternatively, everyone is forcefully urged into it. In other words, the kingdom road is a tight squeeze with a narrow gate, but it's the only way. And we need to force our way in by that narrow gate. And the narrow gate, my friends, does not represent our perfect obedience, but Christ's. Because as Paul says in Romans 3, the righteousness of God has been manifested now apart from the law. So, beloved, our hope is not in the law, not even in the abbreviated version. Our hope is in the narrow gate and the mercy of the gatekeeper. Now, that's not a criticism of the golden rule. Don't misunderstand anything I've said. It's a wonderful summary of how to love our neighbor, and we should strive to keep it. And in fact, we can use it evangelistically because it's actually the ultimate point of contact. People may disagree about everything else in the Old Testament, but everyone agrees to the golden rule for the most part. But knowing that, it's one way to demonstrate their need for a savior because sin and failure are broad ecumenical things. But Jesus is the narrow gate. The gospel is not that we can obey the golden rule, but that Jesus did. Only Jesus truly loved his neighbors, even when no one loved him back. And he demonstrated it at its pinnacle on the cross. He loved us and died for us while we were still enemies, and knowing full well that we could not repay the kindness, he entered the narrow gate and cleared the path for us. The gospel is basically that the, it's not the golden rule itself, it's that God's golden child kept the golden rule for us. So yes, go home and love your neighbors. But I urge you not to put your trust in rules, not even golden ones. Trust instead the one who kept it for you. And enter by the narrow gate and let him do the rest. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we are thankful for the full extent of of the Old Testament law, Lord, that, that you have expressed your mind so fully to us your concern for for purity and sinlessness and righteousness. But we thank you that you are also so gracious that you can reduce it down to a bite-sized portion, a a part of a sentence even. You can summarize it down to, Lord, so that we can keep it right there in the front of our minds, Lord. But, Lord, you know all too well that we will not keep it. 
we have not kept it. Lord, we are all lawbreakers, even of the, the simplest version of the law. But we thank you that your son did keep it. And we thank you that he has opened the narrow gate. Lord, help us to walk that straight and narrow, not because we're going to earn our way into the kingdom, Lord, but because you have enabled us to walk in obedience by saving us and making us your children. We thank you for these things, Lord. Help us to treasure these things in our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join in singing the doxology.